Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 3 today as we begin a brand new uh, series, brand new uh, study that will take us through the next couple of weeks um, called Judgment Day. Uh, that might get you excited, that might make you a little bit um, worried about where we're going with this, but hopefully um, by the end of the message today, I think all of us will have a, uh, a piece uh, from God that uh, we'll be glad that we had this conversation. We're going to begin our time by looking at Matthew 3, verses 1, uh, actually through verse 12. Um, this is uh, John the Baptist coming on the scene. He's going to introduce the world to Jesus, but before he introduces the world to Jesus, he introduces to the world uh, about the kingdom of heaven and the certainty of judgment that's going to come upon the world and essentially he's saying, if you want to get into the kingdom, uh, you're going to have to come through a very narrow way. And, and if you don't come through that way, there's judgment to look forward to. And, and we'll talk all about that as we get into our message. But that's just the setup for this text. John the Baptist comes on the scene, Matthew 3, verse number 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region of the Jordan went out to hear him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath or the judgment to come? Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not think to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing, ha winnowing fan is in his hand. And he, is, he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I think about John the Baptist with a dark brooding cloud behind him, lightning bolts striking and everybody in the, in the crowd that day were tuned in as he said these famous words. So we're going to talk today about and for the next really couple weeks about a subject that is at the same time, one of the most popular subjects in the church world and in Christianity, but also one of the most polarizing. You might would think, well, how can it be both? But I think we can relate to this, that I think we can understand that, that this subject is both very popular, people love to talk about it, love to speculate about it and all that comes along with it, but also it can be very polarizing, very dividing, very uh, controversial or upsetting to some. Now, I, I, I'm not referring to a belief or a certain commandment. I'm talking about something that's much more serious than those things, something that's higher level than those things. In fact, it, this is the reason why beliefs matter and why behavior is even important at all. It's not for this. If not for this, we might not be concerned with what anybody believes, what we believe, or how anyone behaves whatsoever. So the subject I'm referring to, and it's bigger than just uh, the, the issue of judgment, the subject we're talking about is the afterlife. Uh, it is the afterlife and, and all that goes along with uh, the, the future that is beyond this life. 
Now, there are a lot of names we could use here, the end of times, death, but, but both of them kind of, you know, commonly are grouped together, uh, which makes sense because both of them deal with whatever comes next after our lives here on earth are over. So whether we come to the end of life or whether we come to the end of this age, in a moment of a twinkle in an eye, if this age comes to an end, whether we come to the end of our life or whether we all collectively reach the end of this age, both realities are either very enticing, very intriguing, or overwhelming to us. Usually you're on one side or the other, probably not somewhere in between. Whether it's the subject that you like to talk about, don't like to even hear about, I kind of understand people that are on both sides. It makes total sense why the afterlife is both popular and polarizing. The the idea of life as we know it ending or changing in some dramatic way, it can be scary. I mean, of course it is. We only know about life as we know it. To imagine something that we have never experienced, it can be a little bit daunting. At the same time, if this subject is very interesting to you and makes you want to know more, by all means, if if there's such a great unknown out there that we're all going to experience one day and there's information to know about it and to gather about it, then why wouldn't you get as much as you could? So whichever side of the fence you're on, I, I get it. I get it. Your, your feelings. Uh, some people read this, read all they can, study all they can, listen to as much as they can to know about the afterlife, to know about eternity and, and the when, the how, the what. Others don't want to even talk about it, don't want to hear about it because it brings up a sense of dread and fear and uncertainty. And, and, and I don't know where you are with this subject. I don't know where this lands with you. And, and there's probably a lot of factors that influence whether you're interested or disinterested. As a pastor, you know, without considering what the Bible even says, I, I know this is a subject that is going to land in people's ears in very different ways. You know, I grew up in the 90s, and, and uh, I'm very careful how I approach this subject because I grew up in the shadow of Y2K. In the year 2000, and uh, I, I, I can't speak to generations before mine, but all I heard about from you know my earliest memories from the early 90s to, to the late um, was w- the church was super obsessed with the afterlife, with the end times, with eternity. There were movies, there were books, there were sermon series, there were all kind of charts and all kind of information that you could glean from, theories that were proven wrong, theories that have been changed through the years. I mean, if you grew up in that era, if you were alive in that era, you know, right, there were prophecy Bibles, there were all sort of television, you know, specials that you could watch. Um, I witnessed people get so caught up in the charts and the date and the abstract theories and concepts that they, they, they sort of forgot really what they were doing or why they were even saved to begin with. They became so focused on eternity that they kind of forgot that, hey, there's a life that we're supposed to live in the meantime, in that era, if you were there, we became so heavenly minded, we kind of lost touch with our earthly mission. And that's just something that kind of happens. We get caught up in the hype and what, it's all about rapture win and tribulation win and what's your theory and what's their, you know, what do Baptists believe and what do the others believe and we're comparing and contrasting and we get, we, we get so, so enthused about it. We kind of forget that we're still called to make disciples and, you know, yeah, the end could come tomorrow, but that doesn't mean we're to stop serving the Lord. Uh, the Bible never addresses this subject. Subject in, and also dismisses us from our purpose and our, and our calling. It actually only intensifies it. So there's a self-awareness that I have when I'm teaching this subject because I know it can kind of get people down a, a kind of a, a rabbit trail, if you will. A, another reason that I'm, I'm sensitive when I'm breaching this is I'm not so narrow, so narrow and so myopic to, to know that 
that a lot of you, if you've lost loved ones or if, if you have loved ones that, that have recently died or, and passed away, that, that just this subject can just be heavy as you're still mourning them and, and you still wish they were here and talking about the future. It just kind of makes you have a lot of emotions that maybe you, you, you didn't want to deal with on, on a regular uh, day or on a, as you've kind of overcame that season. So depending on where you are in life, um, I, you know, your response to the afterlife and eternity, it, it's, it, it could be different. It could be completely different from someone beside you. Um, you know, depending on who's in your life and maybe who isn't in your life anymore. Um, some of you, your heart longs to be with those that have passed on. Maybe for some of you, uh, so many people that you love are, are in heaven. They are already um, with the Lord, and that just makes your heart long to be there too. And, and maybe many of you, your, your heart is so knitted to people that are right beside you that you don't really want to talk about not being with them, and you don't really want to imagine what life is like you know, when you've just finally got things the way you want them to be here on earth. And, and I get it. It can be a lot of emotions. Uh, but but, but there, there's, there's passions that sway us to one side or the other. But here's the thing. If you dig deep enough, um, if you dig into our hearts, the reason this subject excites some and worries others is really, is really the same. Deep down, we are all so aware and subconsciously reminded of our own mortality, our own brevity, our own fleeting nature. It's the same thing that prevents us from ever fully understanding anything to do with God or eternity when it comes to what was going on before God created the earth, what's going to be like, what it's going to be like beyond this earth. We're finite mortal creatures with beginnings and endings. Therefore, our brains literally stop working when we try to imagine what life is like, what life was like before there was this world, and what life will be like when this world is no longer. Um, our, we, we are so constrained and so, con, you know, so bound to our time time, we can't imagine life as anything other than what it is. Even if it's not always the best here on earth, we still are used to it and we can't imagine what it's like any other way. It scares us. It overwhelms us. We've done super extensive in-depth studies on eschatology. We've talked about God's plan for the ages. We've done theories and speculations in our small groups about the rapture and heaven and hell. And, 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 and we have spent months, months doing that back earlier this year. And this message, this message is not that. This series is not that. Our minds are never going to be able to fully grasp any of that stuff, and it's why it can often be a distraction. So um, this message is really about reducing the subject, reducing it down to an idea that both simplifies it and amplifies it. If you want to summarize this in two words, it simplifies it. Hopefully, it'll simplify it and amplify it. Simplify it in terms of giving us and giving you what you need to know about the subject with regard to how it should impact your life right now today. And also amplify it as to why it's so important and relevant and why you shouldn't ignore it, even if it might at first make you feel uncomfortable. So again, this message, I hate to disappoint anybody, it's not about theorizing when the end will come, how it's going to play out, what it's going to look like. It is, however, about coming to terms with the certainty that one day, for all of us, there are no exceptions. One day, either we will run out of time or time will run out on us. Either we will run out of time or time will run out on us. When it happens, not if, will we be ready for what comes next? 
I know that if we, if we leave it very vague like that, it kind of makes you feel ominous and unsettling. Uh, hopefully, with the help of someone a lot smarter than me and better with his words than me, we'll arrive at a much clearer, comfortable place by the end of time. So just stick with me if you can. The afterlife and the end times are something that Jesus talked a lot about. However, Jesus never pulled a chart out. I'm not making fun of other people that do this, but Jesus, who by all means could have, he never rolled a chart out. He never had a speculation chalkboard. He never passed out handouts that said this is the different theories, amillennialism and postmillennialism and all the different potential dates and times. And He never did that. And I know that kind of sounds funny, but he never did that. Jesus could have done that. He could have nailed down, but he didn't. He had a different approach when dealing with this subject. A very, a very practical one, actually. So when it came to making predictions, Jesus didn't encourage that at all. In fact, he actively discouraged it. Jesus said this on more than one occasion. Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Man, we would save a lot of paper and a lot of, we would save a lot of time if we just took this verse and ran with it. I and mean, we, we are so quick to quote some verses as authoritative, but we forget this one, don't we? It is not for you to know. As in, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, God bless you, I love you, but would you, just, would you just stop? You don't need to do it. It's not good for you. It's just not going to be, it's not, that, that, that is going to distract you from what I think is more important. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words. And I think if he said it, he meant it. It's not for you to know. When it came to giving descriptions, also, people love to talk about what's heaven like. What's it going to look like? What's it going to be like? What are we going to do there? Did you know that Jesus gives us the bare minimum about what heaven is like, about what eternity is like? Jesus gives us these, the most vague descriptions, and couldn't he have told us everything there is to know? And don't you think if we needed to know more than he told us, he would have told us? Hey, yeah, but let's listen to somebody that wrote this book five years ago. Hey, right? I mean, you know, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, didn't really want to do that. He didn't really give us that information. He gave us a lot of information, but not that. So when, in terms of what heaven or eternity would be like, Jesus would say things like this. This is a prayer that he prayed to God. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So that is really, and you might think I'm lying, I'm not. That's the best description of what heaven is like that Jesus gives us. The presence of God full of glory. Really? I mean, Jesus thought that was enough. It's, you're in the presence of Almighty God, and it's glorious. It is the glory, the brightness, the holiness, the perfection, the comfort of God like nothing this world could ever give you. And we act like we need more. Jesus says, I, I, that, that to me, I mean, he said, Father, what I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to being in your presence and I'm looking forward to the glory like it was ever since the t time itself began. Because he was separated from that while he was here on earth. So he was looking forward to it. Also, and, and Jesus did give us one visual aid. So, you know, he, he described it as glorious, the presence of God. The only other visual aid that Jesus really gives us about eternity, about heaven, is this one. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? He said, hey, if you want to know what, the, what heaven's like, there's a big house. And every room in that house is like a mansion compared to what you're used to here on earth. There's a big house. 
And every parable that Jesus told about heaven, you'll know this if you're here for our small group studies, you know this. Every parable Jesus told about heaven, it took place in a big house. Not a lot of little houses or a lot of big houses. One big house. And there was a lot of room in that big house. But that's really all Jesus gives us. Room for everybody in the glory and the presence of God. So I guess we can get the picture. Jesus doesn't detail when or the where about eternity, but he definitely underscores and emphasizes what matters most. So here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't talk about when it's going to happen. He didn't talk about how it's going to happen. He didn't talk about what it was going to be like and what we were going to be doing. But he did, he did make this very clear. One day, this life will end. One day, our lives will end and we will live forever somewhere. Jesus says, your life's not going to be forever here on earth. This world, as you know, it's not going to be forever. But don't worry. You are going to live forever somewhere. Jesus, you see, wanted to zero in on what mattered in terms of our lives here and now and how they will determine so much about what's next. Jesus knows you better than we know ourselves. He knows what we get distracted by. He knows what we get off chasing things, what, what, what takes us out of the, of the straight and narrow path. He knows that, so he didn't give us that stuff. The connection is what, this connection is what Jesus taught on so, so much. In fact, that connection, you could argue, was the overarching overall theme of his entire message in ministry. If you string together all that he taught, all that he said, this is the unified theme from front to back. Life today is all about preparation for life eternal. Now is all about preparation, that's the word, for what's next. Life today is about preparation for life eternal. Now is all about preparation for next. We often get so distracted with all the glitz and the glamour and the glory that comes along with the subject on the periphery intrigue of this subject. But really, again, that's a distraction from what the serious notion of preparation is. And, 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 this, just, and, and this isn't just preparation in, in, in the way that you prepare for a trip. Oh, I better pack that, though you could look at it that way. Because when you forget to pack your clothes or toothpaste, you can always go to the store when you get to where you're going and buy some clothes or clothes or buy some hygiene products. But when the afterlife comes, when you step into eternity, there's no do-overs. There's no running to the store and getting that. There's no going back and doing that. Because once you cross through that passage, there is no going back. So Jesus would rather you trust that God has the details figured out. He has a time. He has a plan. He has a place. He just wants you to know this. The, the reality and the certainty of a coming day of judgment and how that judgment day is the transition from this life to the next. So when Jesus talked about the afterlife, he did so through the framing of a judgment day, a judgment that is coming that's going to signify this life's end and the next life's beginning. He really picked up where his forerunner left off. John the Baptist set things up for him. John the Baptist was the first prophet in 400 years who came to a generation that was so away from God, so far away from God. He came to wake them up and promise them that God's about to do something new. God's about to move in and announce his kingdom is coming soon and a day of judgment is coming with it. 
Get ready. Repent. Change the way you're thinking. Change the way you're living because something big is coming. So John came with a message. The last days are imminent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And judgment will come with it and determine what, will be, what it will be like for you when that kingdom comes. Where you will be when all is said and done. Now, there, if there's preparation we have to do, then we obviously shouldn't waste any time, whether it's imminent or not. John seemed to be preaching as if it's going to happen tomorrow. But there's been a few tomorrows since John preached the message, hasn't there? Regardless, we know that life could be over any time, regardless of whether it's for the whole world or not. Our lives are not promised tomorrow. So I want us to first consider what John is saying, and also I want to contrast what John began preaching with what Jesus came and preached right after him. They don't contradict each other, but it's clear that John didn't see the whole picture. John preached a kingdom is coming, and the, the, the entrance into this kingdom is going to be marked by judgment. The way you get into the kingdom is going to be based on a judgment that is laid down by God. You're either in or you're out. And he's the one with the winnowing fork. He's the one with the sickle in his hand. He's the one that's dividing the wheat from the chaff. So it's up to him. Now Jesus came... And he preached a little different of a message, building off that. But over on the next page in Matthew 4, it begins similar. Jesus' message begins similar to John, but it's clear that Jesus knew more. Jesus had the full story. He had the full message. John was just getting people ready. And man, he got them ready, didn't he? They were standing up straight. They were a little bit scared when they got done with John's preaching. So Jesus shows up, and Matthew 4 is introducing us to Jesus. And in verse 17... It tells us that John was arrested, he was put in prison, and that was a sig signal for Jesus to start preaching. And, and again, there's a lot there, but that's kind of the, 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 the way the story works. So verse 17 and 4 says that from that time, Jesus began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So very similar to what John did, right? Hey, God's about to do something. And they didn't know that Jesus was just another prophet. They thought he was just another guy like John the Baptist. They didn't know he was anything special yet. Until he made himself very special, or he made himself the object of attention in the very next passage. So as Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, like he would say to hundreds of others, follow me. It seems like John puts the pressure on us. Judgment is coming. The end is coming. You don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in hundreds of years, thousands of years. The end is coming. You better make sure you prepare for it. And then Jesus shows up and says, yeah, the end is coming. The kingdom is coming. You better change the way you're seeing the world and the way you're perceiving things and the way you're living. But here's the main focus that needs to be your center of attention. You better make sure you are following me. A little different, isn't it? I want to frame this for you. Jesus taught plenty, and we'll spend several weeks going over this. He taught plenty about what we need to do to be prepared for eternity, how we should live, how, what we should or shouldn't do. But he also made it very clear. Our preparation must first be built on the shoulders of his own preparation. See, Jesus didn't just come to be a prophet and tell us what we needed to do. 
That's what John was doing. That's what every prophet before did. Jesus didn't just come and say, here's what you should do. And he tells us a lot of what we should do. But first, he wants us to understand what he came to do. Does that make sense? John did not come to do anything for anybody other than preach about what was going to happen. Jesus, however, did not just come to be a preacher or a prophet. He came to do something that would impact everyone. And what he would do would impact where any of us get to spend eternity. So, if we want to spend eternity with Jesus, as we learn from Jesus, if we want to spend eternity with Jesus, if we want to spend eternity in heaven, in the kingdom of God, we don't get there because of anything that we do. We get there because of something that's been done for us and an invitation that has been given to us. This is the first thing that Jesus would have you know about Judgment Day. When you hear Jesus on Judgment Day, you should think of this. He has made the most crucial preparation for you. So if you hear John's message and you get a little nervous, oh man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready or not. If you go read the Old Testament prophets, I mean, you think, man, I don't know if I can, I'm going to make the cut or not. I mean, you go read the law and think, I mean, I got to, you know, does God grade on a curve? I hope so. Maybe if the whole class flunks, he'll give all of us a pass. I mean, if you go read those kind of sermons and those kind of messages, and you maybe you sit in a church that preaches that kind of stuff, you may wonder, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Jesus came along and said, yeah, it's that intense. It's that important. Follow me because I'm going to do something for you that you cannot do for yourselves. So Judgment Day might be something you can look forward to that you have no reason to dread, no reason to fear. Yeah, there's things that you need to do. And yeah, there's there's a way you should live. But it's all based on something that Jesus has done for us over everything else that he ever said about eternity and judgment. He wants it to be crystal clear. He came to make the passage from this life to the next one that we can anticipate and we can be excited about and never have a sleepless night when thinking about. Flip over with me to Matthew 22. Jesus told many parables about the kingdom of heaven, but this is my favorite one. And it's not just about what what I like. This is what I think the Bible, this is the best description in the Bible of how Jesus prepared eternity for us and how we should feel about eternity when we think about it if we are following Jesus. And if you aren't following Jesus, this is all the more reason to follow Jesus. And we'll give you more reason in a minute. Matthew 22, Jesus answered as they asked him questions about the kingdom and when's it going to happen, what's it going to be like. So he told these parables, which are these stories that have a meaning and they really only have a, a few singular meanings. The details are really just there to preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. So in these days, a rich man would have his house open. There would be a big wedding festival. There would be tables lined with chairs that would fill the dining hall and go into the greater space of the house. There would be people from all over the land invited to come to the wedding feast. And the father of the son would host everyone in his big, awesome house. So the father has a marriage supper for his son, a wedding feast, and he sends out servants saying, tell those who are invited, 
Verse 4 might be the best picture of the gospel I can give you. I See, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted calf are killed. Now, in these days, if you killed the fatted calf, it must be a big deal. And you must be having some special people over because you didn't kill the fatted calf unless this was a feast to end all feasts that you were never going to be able to match. So what's the message from the king? I have prepared my dinner. I am inviting you all. Come to the, or, verse 4. At the end of verse 4, it says, All things are ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. Now, have you ever been? Have you ever been to a big fancy wedding as just a guest? When you, when you, the lowly guests, right, you walk in, you're thinking, man, this is fancy. How much did this cost, right? You start looking at stuff. You start adding stuff up in your head, right? I've, been, I've done weddings, you know, for people and, and officiated weddings before. When I, and I just walk in, right? I walk in and I'm, I make sure that I look at my suit and I hope that my suit looks good compared to the people's, what they've rented and what they, I'm looking around thinking, man, they didn't spare any expense, so when you, when you, as just a common guest to a wedding, walk into the wedding feast, walk into the wedding sanctuary, are you required to bring anything to make that wedding go on like it was scheduled to go on? No. You got an invitation, and it says, show up and have a good time and stay for the reception. And you were not expected to bring anything because it was already prepared for you. Do you get the picture? Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Sit back and enjoy the feast and party to end all celebrations. This is what Jesus wants you to think about when you think about Judgment Day. This is what Jesus wants you to think about when you think about stepping into the next life. And you know what the guarantee that this is going to transition this way for you? You know what the guarantee that this is how it can be for you? If you have followed him. What was the stipulation for the wedding feast? You were invited. What did Jesus say to those that he met on an you know, everyday basis? Follow me. You are invited to follow me. Now think about this. On a literal understanding of Jesus' ministry in his life, when he would say, follow me, where did they end up after those three years of following Jesus? Where did that journey take them? On a literal point A to point Z map, what did it all culminate in? It culminated in a week where Jesus was celebrated as a king, was then rejected by the masses, took his few followers to a garden to pray, was betrayed, was arrested, was sentenced in a kangaroo court overnight to be crucified. So if you would have been Peter or James or John or Andrew or Nathaniel and you would have followed Jesus day one, where would following him have led you? To this scene. So he delivered him over. The pilot delivered him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross to a place called the skull, which is in Aramaic, called Golgotha. And there, 
They crucified him. So if you would have been literally following Jesus from day one, where would it have led you? To the point where he looks at you and he says, I'll take it from here. You can't follow me any farther. This is my road to walk. They all abandoned him, except for John, who stood at the foot of the hill with his mother and watched. That is where the journey climaxed. That is the destination. Anyone who followed him, and as we follow him, this is what we are led to. And it's on that cross that Jesus made the preparation. It's there the fatted calf was killed. It's there the feast was prepared for. And that's why we get to spend eternity in heaven. Because Jesus prepared a place by stepping into our place. Are we all tracking with that? When John said he saw the master with the winnowing fork in his hand, when John said he saw the master shoveling the wheat from the tear, this is what John saw. When John said the axe is at the foot of the tree, this is what John saw. He didn't realize what it was actually going to be like. It's not us on the tree. It's Jesus on the tree. And it's through his cross and it's through his death alone that we obtain what we need more than anything, forgiveness of our sins. Before we worry about preparing for eternity, what the rewards are, what the risks are if we don't do what the Bible says we should do, why is there more than just a three by five that says God so loved the world? I mean, if, if before, because there's a lot to preparing for eternity. There's commandments to obey. There's things we're told to do. There's relief we can experience. We'll get to all that. But before we ever get there, we must know this, and this must be true about us. Our sins must be forgiven and covered by Jesus' blood. We have a zero chance of earning our way on our own because our sin is too great and our debt is too much. Our sinful nature will never cooperate with God if it is not forgiven and our hearts are not intervened on God's behalf. Now, you might hear this and think, am I that bad? Did Jesus really have to die for me? I mean, did he really have to die to save me? Maybe that's the hang-up for you. Maybe you've never thought about this before. Did he really have to die? I mean, is that saying that I'm that bad of a person? Let me ask you this. Let me, or I want you to consider this. We may not think that our sin deserves judgment, but we're really good at deciding when other people deserve judgment, aren't we? Hello? We're, we're, you been there? I mean, my sin probably didn't send Jesus to the cross, but I can tell you some people's sins that did. We demand justice when they sin, but we don't think our sins are really that bad sometimes. Why is that? 
Is it really that we're so good and they're so bad? I mean, in the wrench in that scenario, if everybody thinks their sin isn't that bad, then the people we're pointing at and saying their sin is that bad, they're pointing at us saying our sin is that bad. When we all think our sin is not a big deal, but we all point the finger at each other. I mean, we do this in politics. We do this in all sorts of scenarios. Their sin is unforgivable. I mean, mine, I mean, nobody knows about it, but nobody, nobody's ever going to know about it because I'm going to hide it. Which maybe tells you why, why you want to hide it, right? We never see our own sin in the mirror. Could, could our overestimation of other sins be some sort of coping mechanism of how we underestimate our own sin? Isn't it true we overestimate the gravity of their sin, but we underestimate our own a lot of us, we get so high and mighty when other people are exposed, but we've got so much hidden, and we hope we keep it hidden, because deep down we know the damage it would do if everybody knew everything that we've ever done. Why do we judge others? Because we think their sin is an offense to God, but our sin, maybe he doesn't even notice. And, and maybe, maybe the real, the real reality is, maybe we just don't, Maybe we just don't have any idea just how holy and righteous God is and how we measure up to him or don't measure up to him truth is we all underestimate how dark our world is and we've gotten used to the dark and we may never really understand just how great our sin is perhaps the thing in us that tries to hide our sin and jumps to expose other sin maybe that's a sign of just how great our guilt really is i want to i'm going to give you a little bit of a story to help maybe land this plane and, and help do two things help highlight our own ignorance and indifference towards sin and also help us understand how God sees us and responds to us in our sin. So the best way I can explain how any of us are before God when we sin and how God chooses to react to our sin is that I, I got to take you back to about 1993, 1994. I was about three years old. I know I was not older than four because I can remember how the house was and what was going on in that time period. This is one of my most earliest vivid memories. The earliest version of our living room at home that I can remember had this giant, I mean, monolithic big screen TV up against the wall. I should have put a picture on the screen, but it's one of those massive screens with the big speakers on the bottom, not one of those wooden TVs with the little glass. I mean, this was a massive, <laughs> dad worked hard and, and uh, he was on the cutting edge of technology. We had this massive satellite in the backyard and this massive TV as big as the satellite. And, and I just love, I, no, you know, I, I didn't know how much stuff cost and I didn't have a concept for this, was this normal or not. We had this massive TV and I loved watching whether Sesame Street or Barney, whatever. I loved watching it on the TV and I was very little. So for whatever reason one day, there was, this was before I started school, so again, I was, I was four at the oldest, but I can see this like it was yesterday. Mom had cut the TV off and was doing things around the house, and I was minding my own business in the living room, playing with whatever, and, and something came over me. I don't remember, but watching Andy do things that clearly she doesn't think through reminds me, of, I guess, of what I would have been like, even a little bit older. For whatever reason, um, I was minding my own business, and, and I, I couldn't tell you what came over me, but I decided that our TV would look a lot better if Big Bird or Barney was just on it at all times. But I couldn't find the remote. So I had an idea. I had a trusty 16-pack of Crayola crayons. And I had a field day on that screen. 
Now, if you had one of those floor model TVs, you know the satisfaction of touching the screen. It wasn't glass or LCD. It was vinyl, and you could rub your fingers up against it, and I can still feel here what that you know, felt like if you've ever had one of those or been around one of those. So here I was. I can remember from end to end, corner to corner, coloring that vinyl, those vinyl grooves with whatever I was using. I don't know what I drew. I don't know. I think I, I just remember coloring the whole screen, and I was very proud of myself. So then mom comes in the room, it might have been my grandmother, but I'm not sure, but uh, there, there, was, there I was looking at the TV thinking, this is just as good as the real thing. Now, do you think three-year-old me had any idea as to what I just did? I didn't know TVs like that cost thousands of dollars. I didn't know the crayon was probably never going to come off completely, no matter how hard somebody scrubbed. I just had an idea, and I executed it to, to, in my limited understanding of, what the, of the world. And there I was, responsible for making a big mess. And, and there comes mom. She asked me what I did and why I'd done it. And, and I, I don't know what I said, because what, what would I have said? I don't know. I just wanted to draw Big Bird on the screen. But, but there I was. And, and again, I don't remember what I said. I do remember she told me, don't ever do this again, and, and let's not tell dad about this if I can get it clean. Right? So I remember, I remember though, what she did. She got a bottle of Windex or whatever and started scrubbing the screen. And there I was with paper towels, you know, watching her and standing beside her as she was scrubbing this. I mean, it was a big screen, right? I mean, you think of big screens today. It was a big, big thing. And again, three-year-old brain, barely functioning. I had no idea what I had done. Here's the thing. There was no way for me to understand the cost or the damage of my actions. No way. I was a kid with a crayon, a toddler. I don't know how much it cost to replace the TV. I had no idea of what it would cost to fix it. And I probably did 20 other things that were just as dumb or just as foolish or just as crazy. And you probably have stories too, don't you? I had no idea the cost or the damage. And there was no way for three-year-old me to repay or repair it. So even if I had been sorely punished, what was I going to do to change the situation? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, sit in the corner for an hour. What's that going to do? Fix the TV? No. Undo the damage? No. Pay for another one? No. So mom told me that crayons were for paper, not for TVs. We cleaned the TV up, and a few weeks later, a new TV shows up. <laughs> one that was a newer mid-90s model that was sitting on a cabinet, so you couldn't reach it with crayons. So this is kind of how sin works. We may be very aware of other people's sins and ready to condemn and reprimand them because you want to bet when I was three years old, I, was, I would run to tell somebody when somebody else made a mess. But I had no idea that I made a mess. Sin is very aware of what others do, but it, we're completely oblivious to what we do. And if you assume that everyone's on the same boat, you kind of get an idea of what God sees when he looks down from heaven. We're a bunch of three-year-olds with crayons or a rock, or a stick, or something that we use to do something way beyond what we could ever imagine in terms of damaging or breaking something. We're all guilty. We all fall short. And there's nothing we can do to fix it. We all underestimate the gravity of our sin before a holy God. And it's that flawed nature that causes us to fixate and overestimate the damage of others' sin. And it's defending, causes us to defend our own sin. So God, observing us wallowing in our sin, confused as ever, trying to justify ourselves, trying to feel better by blaming others, 
Never admitting that we do wrong. Not even having the capacity to understand what we've done wrong. God watched us and did something for us. Which would go over our heads for the most part. Because if we don't understand the degree of our sin, then we probably won't ever understand what it took to take away our sin. And this isn't a cop-out, it's just a reality. But here's what we know. God sent Jesus into the world 2,000 years ago proclaiming a message, the kingdom is at hand. There was a judgment day looming and, and Jesus talked about that day again and again and again and he never said there's something we have to do to prepare for it. He said, follow me and I'm going to do something to prepare it for you and prepare you for it. He and almost, and almost, he confirmed our naivety with our, his imitation. He knew that we never understood the, the gravity of our sin. He knew we never understood the weight of our sin. He's ominous, as ominous as the warnings of judgment were, if you pay attention, there was nothing ominous in the preparation. Because God responded to it in a way that would leave all of us speechless. And maybe you don't understand the weight of your sin still, but when you look at how God responded to it, it puts it in a bigger and better light, doesn't it? God on a cross, that's what it took. So this is why Jesus didn't come warning of a coming judgment. But Jesus came and suffered the judgment of God in our place. Do you understand that? When Jesus come and said, the kingdom is at hand, you, you better get ready. He said, follow me before you start doing your own work because I've got to do something very important for you that you can't do for yourselves. Listen to how the apostle Paul explained why Jesus came. And what he came to do. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets witness to it. Now that means we think of righteousness as doing the right thing, obeying the right commandments, and making sure we don't disobey and making sure we don't break certain laws. But, he, but Paul says that God's righteousness was on display through another way, through the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We think we've got to behave a certain way. No, no, no. He came to do something for us. And all we have to do is believe that he did it for us. And here's what is important. Because our, our defense mechanism says, well, I don't know about my sin, but their sin's pretty bad. Paul says there's no distinction. There's no difference. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken. All of us are flawed. We've all made a mess that we cannot clean up. And we can't climb out of. And no amount of goodness or holiness or perfection or you know, obedience is going to get us out of the mess. So it's not our righteousness that saves us. It's His on display through His life. More importantly, on display through His death. He goes on. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. So what did God do to the sinners that made a mess? He gave us a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as atonement. It's a fancy Greek word, propitiation. But it means atonement. It means payment. It means substitute. 
by his blood to be received by faith. So what, how do you receive it? By faith, by trusting in what he has done. And this is important. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier. As in, who is the only just one? Jesus. Who is the one that justifies? Jesus. So that thing in you that says justice should be served here. Yeah, it should. That thing in you that tries to hide your sin because you know what you deserve. Jesus suffered in their place, in your place, in our place, in my place. And justifies us by his blood. So when we consider what Jesus did, why the Bible says Jesus did it, maybe our sins start taking on a whole other light, a whole other level. Maybe we won't be so quick to point a finger. Maybe we won't be, uh, maybe we won't be so quick to, to, to judge others. Maybe we will not feel so doomed when we think of our own sin because when God could have pointed the finger at us, he pointed it at Jesus. Instead of condemning us, Jesus took our place. God's justice demanded a payment for our sin. Problem is, we couldn't pay it. We didn't even realize the damage we've done. We don't even realize the damage we've done. But God's justice demands a payment. Who's going to pay it? Well, his mercy delayed or deferred the payment. God's mercy looks at you and he looks at me and says, you, you can't pay this. I mean, I could reprimand you, I could scold you, I could put you in time out, I could give you 20 commandments to keep, but you can't pay off what you've done. This is bigger than you. This is way beyond what you can ever imagine is wrong with you and the rest of the world. God's justice demanded, his mercy delayed, and then his grace delivered the payment for our sin in full. So when we think of Judgment Day, maybe the first thing you should think of isn't some day in the future. Maybe you should think of the day that Jesus died because that is Judgment Day. That is the day that your sin was paid for or could be paid for if you believe. His judgment allows us to be saved, actually look forward to the future and whatever eternity has in store for us. So before, before we go, look down at verse 11 in chapter 22 and let's see how this parable ended. Everything is ready. Everyone's invited. Come to the wedding feast. It says that when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man who he did not have a wedding garment on. He said to him, friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? Which they would have been handed out the door because everybody had to be dressed in this cultural attire. He was speechless, because he didn't know. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, the story took on a little different level of severity, didn't it? Because suddenly I don't think they're talking about a wedding feast anymore. Suddenly I don't think they're talking about a wedding party anymore. Suddenly I think they're talking about something a little bit more serious. 
The wedding garment is the pure and spotless covering that comes from being saved by Jesus. The only way we get this covering is by putting our faith in Jesus and he puts his righteousness on us as both just and righteous, as the most just and righteous one. He justifies all who have sinned. Justice demanded a payment. Mercy delayed it. Grace delivered it. And all we have to do is put our trust in him. He was judged in our place. We can be saved by his grace. Totally forgiven, completely saved, eternally secured, destined to spend forever with him. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. You may never understand the gravity of your sin. You may never understand what he did for you, but look at the cross, you get a glimpse of both. Our sin put him there. God's love put him there. So yes, our sin was severe. Our sin was awful, but his love was greater. And his love and grace did something What our sin, as bad as our sin was, his grace reached down and forgave and washed and raised us up brand new. So when you think of judgment day, you don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus was judged for you. And will there be a day in the future where you transition from this life to the next? And will we be judged for that, uh, for what we did in this life? Yes, we will. But what we do must be built on the shoulders of the one who carried a cross for us and hung on the cross in our place. We do not get to that day based on what we do. We get there. Because of what Jesus has done. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reminder of the good news. John the Baptist scared everybody when he said, hey, judgment is coming. But Jesus said, hey, wait, wait a minute. Follow me. I'll show you how you get to the kingdom of heaven. And he took us all to that place called Golgotha. And there he took on a cross. There he took on our sins. And there he paid for them in full. Lord, everybody here today, we all face a judgment one day. We all face a, a, a transition from this life to the next. But we can be saved. We can be forgiven. And if, you, if anyone here today is saved already, they know this. We know this. We are saved based on what Jesus has done. What we do in this life, it matters, but it only matters if it's on the back of, on the shoulders of, on the foundation of Jesus' finished work. He forgave us so that we can have a new start, so that we can have a new, uh, a new opportunity to live and serve for you, so that we can look forward to judgment day. But if before we get there, we have to be covered in, washed in, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin, as great as it is, your mercy, your grace, they're greater. Lord, if there's anybody in the house today that needs to be saved, that has never put their faith in Jesus, they never understood how their sin put him on the cross, they've never understood the gravity of their sin, today they finally get it and they want to put faith that Jesus did it for them and they want to be washed and forgiven in his blood. Would you remind them today? Would you invite them today? And would you bring them to that place of repentance? And for everybody else, maybe we all stand to be renewed and rededicated and revived in this awesome reminder of the gospel. Preparation is key. And thankfully, Jesus has prepared a way for us all. We ask this in his name. Amen.